Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment 222 is going to serve several purposes. It's a standalone message. It's a part three of an archpriest of such significance. And it will be a conflation of what's providentially happened this year, a blending of two national holidays. And I want to make some comments on that. First of all, however, I hope that those who are regularly listening and who may even call themselves members of Tetelestai Phalanx understand what's going on right now. We may have first gone away from our normal gathering together because of the COVID situation and other critical situations for the protection of the flock. But that's no longer the reason. We have gone on an indefinite suspension of our assembling together. And one of the main reasons for this that I can tell you about, and there are many which I can tell you about and some which I cannot tell you about, one of them is the immensity of the importance of the information that God the Holy Spirit is disclosing to us right now, the immensity of the importance of a virtual galaxy of insights that he's giving. Now, I'm saying that not because, and I I hope this is understood by now, not because I'm the teacher, but because I do recognize the significance of the insights that the Holy Spirit has granted to me as a teacher and to all of us together, really. And so it's it's always a team effort and a team benefit. Now, this indefinite suspension is precisely because the information is more important than the getting together right now. And the mastering of the information is more important than you could realize. We're living in a time in which bitter is being called sweet and sweet bitter. Darkness is being put for light and light for darkness. People are being told, are telling us that this is who they are and you have to like it. And I say to them, be who you are if you want, but I don't have to like it. In fact, we live in a time when we don't have to like everybody. I don't like everybody, but I do love everybody because of how I perceive all of humankind in a radically altered situation because of Christ Jesus and him crucified. I don't have to like myself in the old man. I don't have to like my false self. I don't like to have to like the man in me that was once under the control of sin and the flesh and is conformed to this world. I don't love that me. I do love the me that's in Christ Jesus and that has been rad- whose situation has been radically altered because of Christ. And we are under obligation, as Paul is, to look at every person as someone in Christ because they are due to the radical reconciliation that God wrought in Christ. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. So it's not up to me to impute impute your sins to you or my sins to me. It's up to me to forgive It's up to me to forget, it's up to me to bear with and tolerate, it's up to me to love. And that is what the Holy Spirit allows us to do when he pours the love of God out in our hearts. But we are not required to like this world or to love it at all, this world system and the way it does things. 
and the religious system and the way it does things. And so this time has been a hiatus of sorts, but it's one in which I've worked harder than I've ever worked in terms of study to the point where I have to apologize sometimes to people that I haven't communicated with them because I come out of the cave in a state of exhaustion where I probably need to be ministered to rather than minister to others. And so this has been a time. I recognize the immensity of the importance of the insights coming forth in our Hebrew series. I recognize it, and I bow to the Lord Jesus Christ for it. And I bow my knee to the Holy Spirit for allowing it to come forth. And I bow my knees before God the Father, who has granted us this grace, and with whom there is no eclipse or shadow of turning, and no diminution of his love, no matter our deficiencies, no matter our sinfulness. Those who say you're disobeying the mandate to assemble ourselves together are wrong. You are in the wrong, and perhaps it would be nice to admit it today. Hebrews 10.25 is a specifically targeted message to the initial audience of the Hebrews who were forsaking the assembling of themselves together because of fear of reprisal from the religious establishment. And so they had to be encouraged to continue. They were forsaking the assembly precisely because of fear of reprisal. Now, I've seen people do that. When this ministry was under severe assault from the international as well as national media, and it was through an assault of the evil one in every single case. During that period of time, and there's still attacks on social media, many people cowered in their homes and were afraid to assemble with us when they very well should have and taken the courage to do so. And so then that kind of application of Hebrews 10.25 would have been merited and been full on and someone should have obeyed it. Right now, that's not the case. Right now, we're not assembling together in the sense of a physical gathering, although we are assembling, and I'm, I'm delighted when I hear of groups meeting in homes, of DVD groups that are continuing, of communion services that are being held and open to all. I am delighted. I think it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. I love the initiative that people take to have their own fellowships and they, or their own gatherings and their own careful gatherings where they're careful to love one another in terms of watching out for the health and well-being of others, and all of it is wonderful. But one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that we are not gathering together is to highlight the immensity of the importance of the insights we're receiving at this time in Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. This is information that is ammunition for you in the spiritual battle. This is information that is tactics and strategy for you in the agona. This is the kind of information that riddles you with the hope of a change of human condition which will come about in the radical alteration brought about by the resurrection when our deliverer comes from heaven to give us bodies of glory like his own. This is a time which anticipates even greater crises in the future in which to be forewarned is to be forearmed. 
This is a time when you take seriously, if you want to take seriously and benefit from what I'm saying, you will benefit by listening to this message and by reading it in the notes. Those who are doing so are benefiting to the maximum from this and are revealing it and reflecting it in their lives, which are manifesting Jesus Christ in their mortal bodies. And I could name you and tick off on my fingers left and right people by name who are doing this and doing it splendidly and whose ministries, though anonymous, are more far-reaching and more effective than my ministry, if I could even call it my ministry. And so the immensity of the importance of the insights. I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this because it's factual. If I did not believe in the immensity of the importance of what I'm communicating to you in Hebrews and in Revelation and in Romans and in other series, I would have quit a long time ago. I would have retired a long time ago. Or I would have just become a journalist for some propagandist rag that we call newspapers today, with few exceptions. And I'm being slightly facetious on that last point. So call increment 222 a three-parter. First, we'll call it a rant, a Rick rant, if you want, if you want to call it that. I'm stealing the term, of course, from Dennis Miller, who always did his rants. And so this is a Rick rant. So forgive me for it. Not. This is second part. And the second part has to do with a twofold holiday this year. This will be aired probably on June 19th. And we are used to identifying the conflation or the blending, the kind of skillful blending of Bible verses. Jesus famously conflated Psalm 110.1 and probably with it Psalm 110.4 was suggested with Daniel 7.13 speaking to Caiaphas in Matthew 26.64. He conflated verses. John, the author of Revelation, conflated Zechariah 12.10 with with Daniel 7.13, the great Son of Man verse in Revelation 1.7. So why can't we conflate two national holidays that we celebrate in the United States on this day? And forgive me for being provincial, but these are American holidays So those of you that are listening in Great Britain or in other countries, you'll have to forgive us for our little self-indulgence here. June 19th, 2022 serves double duty this year as a recognized national holiday. It is Juneteenth and Father's Day. In the United States, this day honoring fathers and fatherhood, which is a a Father's Day is celebrated across the world at various states, incidentally. But in the United States, this day, honoring fathers and fatherhood has been celebrated in the third Sunday of June ever since 1910. Juneteenth goes back further than that. It is also known as Jubilee Day, taking a page out of the Bible, or rather a chapter, namely Leviticus 25. It is also known as Emancipation Day, especially in Texas. It's known as Freedom Day, and it's also known as Black Independence Day. It celebrates the anniversary of the official emancipation of slaves in states that were in rebellion against the Union. 
More specifically, Juneteenth acknowledges the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865. Two and a half years, incidentally, after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And they did so in order to ensure that all enslaved people be liberated. So it was kind of a liberating force. Confederate General Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse two months earlier in Virginia. But slavery had effectively continued in Texas until U.S. General Gordon Granger arrived in Texas with his troops, and on Texas soil he read General Orders Number 3, quote, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. So on June 17, 2021, our current president, officially and rightly, wrote into law that it become a federal holiday. For both of these holidays, the word of God is relevant, and it always is relevant. And the word of God is relevant, which says that there is, listen to this, one body, one spirit, one hope of your salvation. One hope of your calling, that is. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that's the spirit baptism that baptizes all into union with Christ Jesus. One God, and here's the ticker, here's the kicker. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. So let's celebrate the Father and his fatherhood, which is over all, in all, and through all the human race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of so-called race, regardless of culture, regardless of time span, and regardless of IQ, regardless of social status, regardless of economic status or social caste, Our Father, our Father, is an address to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our Father, Ephesians 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 17, Matthew 6, 9, John 20, 17, where Jesus said, I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So our Father is an address from the heart and on the lips of all races across this globe. We are all, we were all, enslaved to sin. No matter what our societal position, our cultural caste, or our economic status on earth. And we have all been emancipated by the act of our Father in Christ Jesus, his Son by whom all human beings of all races are justified, and in whom all human beings of all ethnicities are to be made alive. God, the Father, was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And now, by one spirit, we are all immersed into one 
body, one new humanity, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are given the one spirit to drink, and we were all made to drink of that one spirit. On the deepest and on the highest levels of reality, the reality that is Jesus, whom we are seeing through Hebrews. Those who held slaves were not free just because they weren't slaves. They were not free just because they were so-called free men, but because they have been emancipated from the ultimate slavery to sin. And those who were slaves to men and considered to be the property of landed slave owners and who were later emancipated, so-called, were not really truly free because of an emancipation proclamation that was declared and signed by President Lincoln or because of the events of Juneteenth, but because they and we all were emancipated from sin by Christ Jesus our Lord. We have all sinned, and we have all been emancipated from sin by the judge who was judged in our place, and by the priest who is also the lamb of sacrifice. This is the situation of us all. But our condition, our condition may either be slavery to sin or liberation from sin's actual control. No one is free who is still under the control of sin. And no one is truly enslaved if one is free from the control of sin. We've all been bought with a price. Therefore, we're all under obligation in our freedom to glorify God in our bodies which belong to God our Father. We begin to glorify God in our bodies by presenting our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And as we begin to no longer be slavishly conformed into the mold of this evil age, And when we begin to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to perceive the radical alteration of the entire human situation that was brought about in Jesus Christ and him crucified, him buried, him raised, him ascended, him seated and exalted at the Father's right hand. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.23, we were all bought at a price. So let's not ever become slaves of other human beings. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved instead to righteousness, which is really the definition of freedom. Romans 16, 6, 17, and 18, along with 1 Corinthians seven twenty three. A little conflation. An emancipation proclamation made by men and enforced by human governments cannot entirely free anyone from slavery. Only the liberating truth with a capital T and the kingdom of God that is in Jesus can truly emancipate. For as Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, quote, If, and this is put in context, I get so tired of hearing the truth will make you free as if just not lying makes you free or telling the truth about a certain incident makes you free or telling what you perceive to be your truth makes you free. 
Jesus said it this way in the context. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the truth that's embodied in Jesus that liberates, emancipates, frees us into a jubilee of freedom. John 8, 31 and 32. But to Jesus, they replied, argumentatively, I may add, they replied, we are descendants of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free in John 8, 33? And Jesus responded with these words, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. John 8, 34 to 36. Again, no proclamation signed by a man and backed by a government and a military can bring about true emancipation. Only the action of God the Father, the passion of God the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit can bring about true liberty. Now the Lord is that Spirit, says the Scripture. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So welcome to freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are reflecting the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is of the Spirit. This is what we are doing right now as we listen to the Word, as we look into the mirror of the Word of God and see the reflected face of the image of God in Jesus Christ and are changed from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there's liberty. The Spirit. So let's continue to enjoy the freedom for which Christ freed us by continuing in his word and to be enlightened and enlivened by the spirit of grace and truth. And let's never be brought under any yoke of slavery again, including slavery to guilt. Let's continue in Jesus' word and let this word about Christ that we call Hebrews, dwell richly in our hearts. So, for part three of Increment 22, let's begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the bread of the messianic banquet and bring about the universal jubilee in which all debts will be forgiven. Let us not crack or cave in under the pressure of this time in between, the alteration of the human situation and the alteration of the human condition. And deliver us from the wiles and stratagems of the evil one. For yours and not his is the power and the majesty and the kingdom and the glory both now and forever. Amen. And now, Father, let your kingdom come in a little more fullness through this increment of teaching from your gift to us of this heavenly homily called Hebrews. And here we have the throne of the majesty in the heavens is going to be the subject, but we are under the general 
topic of an archpriest of such significance, part three. Hebrews 8.1 is our text. Now, the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That we have an archpriest of such significance, the topic of these last a triplicate of messages, is a declaration or a trio of messages, we could say, a declaration that deploys the ongoing present active indicative form of the verb echo, E-C-H-O, omega-O, that is, E-C-H-O. So in the Greek text, we have this word looking like this, E-C-H-O-M-E-N, but that's a present active indicative, an ongoing reality, and it is of the lemma, echo, the verb, this is what you'd see in any lexicon. We have, that's a present active indicative, and so we have an archpriest of such significance is a declaration that deploys the ongoing present active indicative form of the verb echo. The initial readers and hearers of Hebrews, probably in the 60s of the first century, had the wonderful gift and benefit of such an archpriest. This gift and privilege continues in full force for us on the level of our time. Both their time and our time have in common that it is a great time in between. The radical alteration of the human situation from enmity to reconciliation with God. And we are between that and the radical and glorious alteration for the infinite better of the presently ongoing human condition. I like this word, the time in between. In fact, Pam and I watched a series. We sort of got mildly addicted to a series on one of the Netflix or Amazon or one of those called The Time in Between. And I think it was a series that was filmed in Spain. It was pretty well done. And so we had actually had something to watch on TV for a while called The Time in Between. I think it's still up and you can get it, but uh, The Time in Between it's called. And so this kind of stuck with me. The time in between is not entirely without a change in the human condition. In other words, there isn't this radical gap between the change of the human situation and the change of the human condition as if there is no change in the human condition going on, for there is. So... Both their time, the time of the initial recipients of Hebrews, and our time have in common that it is a great time in between the radical alteration of the human situation from enmity to reconciliation with God and the radical and glorious alteration for the infinite better of the human condition. For there are throughout the cauldron of human history a countless number of individuals to whom God has revealed his son and who have received the liberating Holy Spirit. And that's why I say there is not an utterly 
No change. There is not utterly no change in the human condition going on in this time in between. Reason? The time in between is not entirely without a change in the human condition because there are throughout the cauldron of human history a countless number of individuals to whom God has revealed his Son and who have received the liberating Holy Spirit who have been and are continuing to be nourished on the milk of the word and growing up into their salvation to the point where they also can handle solid spiritual food. Such people have constituted a community that is in but not of this world, a community commonly called the church. It's a messianic community. Though by no means or measure perfect and certainly by no stretch of the mind sinless, this community is being at least in some cases gradually transformed so that in greater and greater measure they reflect the image of the Lord as they keep gazing into the mirror of the word. Because of this, there is no, not an absolute divide. And this is a, an advance on our doctrine about the alteration of the situation and of the condition. There is not an absolute divide between the alteration of the human situation and the alteration of the human condition. Because the actual human condition in sin and sinfulness is alleviated in some measure and by some great measure in some by those who are growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the spirit of grace whose mission is to each of those individuals to whom God has revealed his son. So we say in this meantime in this time in between we have such a great archpriest. We have an archpriest who is of such significance. In our excursion series on the Most High God, we observe that the Most High God is the creator and possessor, Genesis 14, 19, of the heavens and the earth. The NETS version of the Septuagint of Isaiah 66, 2 reads this way, For these things my hands has made, speaking of the heavens and the earth, and all these things are mine, says the Lord. And in Revelation 21, 5 and 6a, in my translation, and the one who is seated on the throne said, notice that on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he said, write, these things are faithful and true. In verse 6a, and he said to me, it is done. Astonishing. From this, let's receive then two more insights, insights of immense importance. One, the extent of God's dominion is the extent of God's salvation. And the extent of God's creation is the extent of God's redemption. That's one twofold insight. I'll say it again. The extent of God's dominion which is universal, heavens and earth, Ephesians 1.10, is the extent of God's salvation. Again, Ephesians 1.10, and the ex in Colossians 2.20, and 1.20 make that. And the extent of God's creation is the extent of God's redemption. Second insight that derives from Isaiah 
6a and Revelation 21, 6a. It is done means that the permanent alteration of the situation of all things has happened and is in the crucified, in risen, and exalted, and enthroned Jesus. And that what is done, what is done and declared to be done in Revelation 21, 6, will be manifested to be done when the great archpriest and savior appears and when the alteration of the human and creational situation is manifested openly to all in the permanent transformation of the creational and human condition. Glorious day, waiting for it on tiptoe anticipation. The Apostle Paul, for one, recognized that in saying 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17 is the anchor verse for this. As he recognized that already every person is in Christ due to the alteration of the human and creational situation that had been brought about in Jesus Christ and him crucified and by the action of God in Christ by which the world was reconciled to God. So we are in this time in between the time in between. And we have an archpriest of such significance that he saves, delivers, and preserves us in this agona so that we may say with Paul, and here's my Targumic translation of Romans 8, 31b through 39. We may say with Paul, if God is for us, and he certainly is for us in all the ways previously specified. Who can be effectively against us? <laughs> no one at all. Since indeed God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not freely grant us all things with him, who is not only the son, but the heir of all things. Here I'm conflating a little bit of Romans with a little bit of Hebrews. 1-2, for example. Verse 33 of Romans 8, Paul continues, Who will bring an effective accusation against God's elect? Will God, the one who justifies? The thought is unthinkable. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died? And beyond even that, who was, listen carefully to this, raised up? And that refers back to Romans 4.25, that he was raised up for our justification, which came about through his faithful death for us, who is now and forever, note the connection here with Hebrews, now and forever at the right hand of God, advocating and interceding on our behalf. Of course he won't condemn. The thought is unthinkable. 35, Romans 8. In the meantime, that is, in this time in between, until the last judgment when we will all experience our identification with Christ and our rectification in the light of glory, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? As, this, as it is written in verse 36, because of our identification and association with you, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, no, 
Paul replies, in all these things we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. That's God who reconciled us to himself while we were still his enemies. And that's Christ who died for us while we were ungodly and in a state of intractable sinfulness. Remember, at the heart of the gospel, there is this statement. God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. 38, Romans 8. For I have been persuaded, and I say this with Paul, I echo these words. Echo these words. For I have been persuaded beyond doubt that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things in the present or things about to be. Nor powers. Powers above nor powers below nor any other governmental institution like the Roman Empire and the present day tyrannies of our time and its agents whom it sends to punish what it considers to be disobedience to their ideology. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? Hell no. And, as Paul said, nor will there be anyone who will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom God will transform the evils just listed into the supreme good by the just and mysterious law of the cross. That's an expanded Targumic translation by yours truly of Romans 8.31b to 39, which I echo from Paul. And with this, the apostle of Jesus Christ in whom God revealed his son, we may each and every one of us say, confidently say, The Lord will deliver me from every evil stratagem and bring me safely and completely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory for the ages of the ages. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18. And again, as we close, with the prophet Micah, we may say, even if we have fallen, and which of us hasn't from time to time, Even if we have fallen, we may say with Micah, the prophet, who also experienced a fall, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Micah 7, 8. So though for the time being we sit in the darkness and the obscurity of this evil age, With the human and creational situation largely unchanged, the Lord is our light, and the exposition of his word gives light, gives insight, gives the information we need. And his word lights up our path, lights up the king's highway on which we walk by faith and not by the insufficient perceptiveness of empiricism, scientism, and destructive and stupid ideologies that are running rampant today and are contrary to the truth. So with that, we say, thank you, Father. Let your kingdom come indeed. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.